Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored. Every week, this podcast navigates a new topic through interviews with the most disruptive minds in sustainability, turning their experiences working behind the scenes into actionable advice you can use in your life, no matter your background. My name is Anna. I am an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Today I'm with Noel Bagwell. The topic we will explore today is something I wanted to cover for a very, very long time. We're going to talk about environmental laws and environmental economics. Noel is a podcast host of the show called The Honest Lawyer Podcast. I'm delighted to interview a fellow podcaster on my show. I'm sure the discussion today will be very interesting and will not leave you indifferent. Before we start, I have a little announcement to make. Running this podcast is one of the biggest joys of my life. And as much as I love talking to my guests, I love to get the listeners' messages and communicate with you all. Many of you asked me over the course of this year whether I could give you some career advice in the field of sustainability. So I'd like to offer a free up to two hours long career consultation to anyone who leaves this podcast a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts until the end of 2020. All you'll have to do is step one, leave a review for Sustainability Explored on iTunes and step two, book a call with me on my website annachashina.com using career consultation tab. Starting 2021 with a clear career strategy and defined goals might be the best present I can give you. And now, if you're ready for the interview with Noel, let's get it started. Noel, it's a super great pleasure to have you with us today on Sustainability Explored. The floor is yours. Please introduce yourself. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you mentioned my podcast. We actually just wrapped the final episode of the Honest Lawyer podcast. It ran for three seasons and it was my best friend from law school, Bradley and I. He lives in Georgia, so all of our recording was remote. I lived in Tennessee, so we're both in the Southeast United States. Yeah, life just sort of got crazy. He had a kid, I had a kid, he's working at a big firm now and I'm building my firm and it's scaling up. And so we just sort of said, hey, it's a little too crazy right now to keep doing the podcast and we wound it, we wound it up. But we had a really great run. It was a lot of fun. We talked about a lot of topics. Interestingly, one of the ones we never really got to was environmentalism. So it's nice to be able to guest on a podcast and talk about some of these things because in law school, my, my forte was economic analysis of law. So that's what I really like to look at. I like to look at how passing new regulations or new laws has economic effects and whether or not those effects are positive or negative. And what we really look at when we're evaluating whether they're positive or negative is do they allow us to produce more goods and services for more people at lower cost? And I would add to that in in a sustainable way, because it's no good to just have rampant capitalism run amok if you're ruining the world for the next generation. I mean, obviously, we do have to keep an eye on that. It is responsible to do that. And But at the, on, as a counterpoint, you don't want to get so hung up on environmental issues that you actually start putting 
other things before people, before human lives, you know, that's, that's not healthy. And I think sometimes policies like cap and trade can do that. We, we talked about that sort of off the air before in our other conversation. And I, I'm sure you probably want to talk a little bit about that now. Absolutely. But first I want to refresh uh, for the listeners, the term of sustainability. It's a mixture of three pillars of three big blocks. It's uh, people, planet, and prosperity. Some people call it profit. So economics, social part, and the pure environmental part. And what you say really, uh, my uh, kind of a, a bell was, uh, how do you mean produce more goods and more services in the circular way, in the circular economy way? Speaking of the legislation, what do you believe in? incentives or the legislation what do you think based on your experience works best shall we push more into the law sphere or kind of work with people on the incentive side yeah so that's kind of a trick question because the law provides incentives and people respond to incentives i mean if we look at rational choice theory public choice theory if you tax something you get less of it if you subsidize something you get more of it and the reason is incentives. Every Everything that the government does provides either positive or negative incentives. So if you're saying, should we regulate more? You're, you're really saying, should we tax more? Because every regulation is a tax. And I'll return to that point in just a second with a brief explanation of what I mean by that. And when you say, or should we provide incentives? I infer that you mean positive incentives like subsidies and that sort of thing. Am I tracking your question? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Uh, when I say every re- regulation is a tax, people think, well, no, it's not. They're just telling you, you can't do that or you should do this. And what they're really saying is, we're going to introduce a new tax and we're going to build in a loophole. If you do this thing, you won't have to pay the tax. Because in the state of nature, in the natural world, if people were just left to their own devices, they would just do whatever they wanted to do. And the government doesn't want them to just do whatever they want them, whatever they want to do. They want them to do specific things and to behave in specific ways and in intentional ways. And so they say, we are going to create an incentive for you. It's going to be a negative incentive. If you pollute, if you generate more CO2 than this, whatever amount, arbitrary amount or whatever, whatever it is, even if it's not arbitrary, if it's based on something, it's still a, a cap, a specific cap. If you produce more CO2 than that, or if you, I don't know, do whaling or kill sharks for their fins or whatever your cause du jour may be, then we're going to effectively punish you. We're going to tax you. But if you don't do those things, you don't have to pay the tax. So it's a built-in loophole. They, they say, we're going to have this tax. And if you don't do those things, or if you only do so much of this and you stay within the regulations, then effectively you don't have to pay the tax. But the tax becomes the new default setting. So every regulation basically involves a tax. It involves some kind of penalty if you violate the regulation. I recently had to deal with a situation that involved asbestos. Small business client, right? Very small business. And so the, they were coming in to renovate this very old building. Uh, of course, in the United States, when I say very old building, that means something more than 50 years old. We don't have very old buildings here, right? Like it's the whole country is less than what? 200, 200, 300 years old. It's, we're pretty young. So for us, something old is, is just more than 50 years. But this was a building that was built, I think, in, in the 1800s or so, 19th century building. And at some point after it was built, they laid down some tile that had asbestos in the flooring. The landlord rented the space to the tenant. The tenant's my client. The client hired a contractor. The contractor came in and said, 
there may be asbestos. We don't know, but you know, we'll let you know, whatever. And they started pulling up the tile and then they just started pitching it in the bin outside. The inspector came around and noticed that there was tiles. They did a quick little field test and said, Oh, we've detected asbestos. So they sent them a notice of violation. And all of a sudden this became a, you know, several days project where they had to stop everything, clean it all up. And then they got the contractor got a notice of violation and my client got a notice of violation. And my client called me and said, well, we got this notice of violation, but we didn't know this. We didn't even know that we had to do a test. We had no idea. And so I looked up the law and the law says that it's a class C misdemeanor, $10,000 fine per day per violation, which is pretty expensive. Right. But it's only class C misdemeanor and has up to that fine if you knowingly violate the regulations and so on. So the question becomes, did the contractor knowingly violate the regulation? Did the contractor know that they had to go and do an asbestos test? And here we have a concept called constructive knowledge. And constructive knowledge is different from actual knowledge. It's where a judge goes, you should have known. You either knew or you reasonably should have known that that was your job. It's very expensive to do these things the right way to comply with the regulation. It's cheap to just grab the tiles, throw them in the bin and hope you get away with it, right? But that's not good for the environment. There's a reason that we have these regulations. Um, asbestos can cause mesothelioma and we have um, class action lawsuits that are costing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. It's, it's very, very expensive. Um, and so it's bad to have asbestos in the atmosphere. It's bad for people. It's very unhealthy conditions. So it's a reasonable regulation to have. And contractors have to comply with that. If you're a homeowner and you buy a home that has asbestos in the tile and the flooring and you just pull it up yourself and dispose of it yourself and you don't hire a contractor or whatever, I think the state sort of looks at that like, okay, that's your, the risk, all the risk is on you. It's your home. It's your house. It's not a public space. And so if you're injured by that, then we're not going to get terribly involved. So it's, there's not really air quality violation, you know, environmental regulation that would, would inhibit you from doing that. But in a public space, like a business, an old building, something like that, you have to comply. A big part of the cost of all of these regulations is even staying current with them to even know that there is a regulation because the landlord didn't know really what was going on. She knew there were some renovations going on. She didn't know the extent of it and all that. The tenant told the contractor, this is what we want done. Please do it. And you hope that all the way along the lease from the landlord to the tenant has a clause in there that says that the tenant will stand up and defend the landlord if, if the state penalizes them for anything that they do that would violate the law. And you would hope that the, the contract between the tenant and the contractor would have a similar clause, that if the contractor does something illegal, they fail to comply with the regulations or whatever, then they step up and protect the tenant. And so the, the liability rolls downhill. You would hope that the contractor would know their job and they would either have the actual knowledge, which is best, or they would take responsibility for having the constructive knowledge that they had to comply with that regulation. But in any event, it's going to be expensive for the contractor. They're going to need to have legal counsel to keep them apprised of the regulations that they have to comply with. And then if they don't comply, then obviously they're going to have to answer to the state whenever the regulations are in force. And so that's just a really like that whole big, long thing. That's from like a three day. We pulled up some tiles in a building problem, right? That's that's a lot. 
And you might think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, right? But I'm really not. Like it was a big thing. And $10,000 per day per violation is no small amount of money. It gets very expensive very fast, even for the smallest of things. So when you start talking about regulating big things like carbon emissions, you have to ask yourself, not is anthropogenic global warming real? That's the big question. You know, climate deniers are, oh, it's, it's not real or whatever. Or some of them will say, well, it's real, but it's the sun. It's the solar activity. Like, it's not anthropogenic. Global warming is real, but we're not the problem. But I think there's a completely different perspective that we need to look at if we really want to look at economic analysis of law and climate regulation. It's what would we have to do in order to get, for example, one degree of cooling, one Fahrenheit degree of cooling? I don't know, are you on Celsius? It does, I don't think it really matters that much, right? Since one degree is one degree. So to get one degree of cooling, what do you have to do? A very unpopular man in climate circles, obviously, made a, a really good argument about this. His name is Lord Christopher Monckton. He's a British lord, and he's been slapped with the climate denier label and all of that. So I know he's a really unpopular person. And I'm not going to recite his arguments about whether or not global warming is real or any of that, right? But I, I just want to look at the economic argument because he made a really sound point, And I would love to have your perspective on this. He said that there really isn't any point in doing anything to regulate carbon emissions because we burn 30 billion tons of CO2 worldwide. So this is his math, right? He put it on a big chalkboard. There's a YouTube clip of the whole thing. You can go and look it up. 30 billion tons a, a year of CO2 worldwide. And that's the equivalent of two particles per million per year in the atmosphere. So that would be 15 billion tons per part per million. So that's very simple. You get 30 divided by two is 15, 15 billion. So 15 billion tons per part per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Now the, C the UN says that we're going to increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere unless we do something about it by 468 parts per million in the next century. So that's four, 468 BPMV. So that means you multiply that by the 15 billion and you get, get 7 trillion tons that we're going to emit of CO2 if we don't do anything to mitigate it over the next century. 7 trillion tons. And they say, the, UN's, the UN says that those 7 trillion tons are going to cause 7 degrees Fahrenheit of warming in the next century, seven degrees. And Moncton says that that's wrong, but he says we're going, even if they are wrong, so what? We're gonna give them that, right? We'll concede that point. So he says that means that roughly in order to forestall, to hold off one degree of warming Fahrenheit, one degree Fahrenheit of warming, you have to forego the emission of one trillion tons of CO2. Now. We can argue that point. I don't know, but that's his argument. Okay. So now divide the, the trillion tons by the number of tons, the 30 billion tons per year that we started with that we're burning at the moment worldwide. And how many years is it going to take before we've saved one Fahrenheit degree? It's 33 years, 33 years that we have to forego all carbon emissions in the world, all of them, all carbon emissions for 33 years to get one degree Fahrenheit of cooling. So that means no automobiles on the planet, anywhere, 
no electricity generation, it, except, I guess, solar or wind or water. No planes, no trains, no hospitals, no factories, no carbon emissions. So zero carbon footprint for all of humanity. Good luck getting China and India on board with that, by the way, for 33 years for one, one Fahrenheit degree. And he says, that's why it, it, there's no point at all in trying to mitigate carbon emissions because it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference to the climate anything that we do, any carbon emissions that would be possibly feasible at all, anything that the government could regulate, any limit that they could impose, any tax that they would put on us would do nothing. And if you did, say you did pass the most stringent regulations possible, you regulate CO2 as much as you can, right? All it really does is raise the cost of energy, and we talked about this before. It imposes that tax for not complying with the regulation. And when you impose that tax, the only people who are going to pay the tax are going to be the uber-rich, the ultra-rich people that they can finally afford energy. Then there will be widespread unrest, riots in the streets, because everybody but the ultra-rich will not be able to afford energy. They won't be able to afford gas for their cars, to take a plane anywhere, hospitals, factories, all of the things. So what will they do? What will governments do? What do they always do when people are riot, rioting because of deprivation? They subsidize or they turn to a larger global world power, the United States or some other country for aid. You know, they come in and, and provide aid, you know, billions and billions of dollars of aid every year. And that's fine. You know, it, it is what it is. So. That's what happens. So they end up subsidizing the poor. So if the, the rich are taxed because of carbon emissions and the poor are subsidized, effectively all you've done with the carbon emissions is transfer wealth from the rich to the poor. It's just robbing the rich and giving to the poor. It's, it's Robin Hood. I, Robin Hood, I see it slightly differently. First, I wanted to, to insert a little comment. There, COVID-19 enters the stage and suddenly you don't have airplanes anymore, which leads me to you know, a little bit of a philosophical thought. Nature always regulates itself and nature is very adaptable. The question with the climate change is where, whether we will be here surviving through it that the planet will exist no problem i mean different species of animals and different species of uh, trees and flora and fauna and so on but something tells me and i did an episode on the amazon rainforest with danny blue uh, at the end i gave kind of, kind of a big piece of the report on how the land use triggers the pandemics it has already happened in uh, indonesia and again, it goes to simplify, a bat ate a fruit, the fruit uh, fell on the, on the ground, the pig picked it up, someone ate the pork, and there something started. And, and then I also read it in the media that I follow called Monga Bay, purely environmental kind of a media outlet. The nature finds a way to, to balance itself out. Either it throws us a new pandemic, which, again, the scientists say we will have more and more of in the upcoming years. Another thing is, yeah, I really am not a big believer in the crime and punishment sequence. And this is 
this is what the tax is. But I fully disagree with Robin Hood. I believe I see that poor are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer simply because they can afford the tax. The poorer cannot afford, therefore they don't use whatever the product or service is. And uh, this is another thing that this pandemic is showing us is that the gap between uh, Jeff Bezos just became the richest uh, planet on earth while uh, the rest of the globe is what, 25% unemployed right now? Well, sure. And, but what you're seeing there is a, a delay in the chronology because yes, the, well, as I said, the, the people who are going to be able to afford energy are the rich, but it's going to take a while before there's enough unrest to trigger the government coming in and, and regulating in a, a sort of Robin Hood way with the subsidies for the poor. It's going to, it, it has to get really bad before that's going to happen because otherwise you're, you're not going to have the political will to do this. And um, there's a wonderful book, I think it was written in the late 50s by a man named Eric Hoffer called The True Believer. And Hoffer wrote, he, he actually won the Presidential Medal of Freedom from uh, Ronald Reagan gave him the Medal of Freedom. He's like a blue collar philosopher guy, kind of a hero of mine, because I love him because he doesn't have the sort of academic, wonky, I don't know, elitist ivory tower perspective. He was a real guy. He was like really nitty gritty, very authentic as, a, as philosophers go, right? And he wrote about how mass movements rise and, and how they really don't come from the poor because they're too beat down to really do anything. They don't come from the rich because they're living high on the hog. They come from the disgruntled middle class who feel like they've lost something. And that's where ma mass movements come. And what you're seeing, in, at least in the United States, and I think this is true in first world countries around the, around the world, is you're seeing greater wealth disparity. You're seeing the rich getting richer. And to a certain degree, the poor getting poorer, although in first world countries, the poor have never had it so good. Like if you're in the United States and you're in poverty, you're still among the top like 2% wealthiest people on planet Earth, right? Our poor people do really well. The only ones who don't do really well, I mean, relative to like poor people in other parts of the world, and I've been to some rough places around the world, like I've been to the, the ghettos of Panama, right, in, in Panama, where it's just like, it looks like bombed out concrete buildings, or at least it did in 99 when I was there. It looked really bad it was, you know, after Noriega and all that. But so anyway, I've been to some, some pretty rough places. Um, you look at parts of Brazil, parts of Rio, even where the gangs, drug gangs, just control whole swaths of everything, and it's poor. People don't have running water, they don't have electricity in a lot of places. It's really, really bad. So you think about being poor in America, right, where you have public housing and food stamps and all of this, and yeah, there's you know some hunger and all of that, but I think largely a lot of that in the U.S. the the plight of the poor is largely overblown. Not that people don't have it bad because they do, it's just not as bad as in the third world right? It's, it's not as bad as that. It's, it's all relative. And so I'm not here to sort of dump on anybody because I know of, of all people, I've got it pretty good, right? So I'm not here to diminish anyone's suffering, but I am here to point out to the fact that it is really relative and, and being poor in America is really different from being poor in like Ghana, right? Yeah, so, yeah. and your heart really just goes out to people in those situations. So I say that to say the poor, the poor in those situations, the poorest of the poor around the world, they just don't have the means to rise up and do anything. So it really takes 
the middle class to get pinched in places where there isn't much of a middle class. You can't really expect to see a lot of mass movements rising up. You don't see a lot of insurrection. They just, things remain status quo for decades or centuries. And then where you do start to see the rise of the middle class, you start to see more turbulence, a little more unrest, things getting shaken up, political change, regimes, you know, coming and going rapidly. And I think it really takes the middle class putting pressure on politicians to do something before that really happens. And there's always going to be a big time lag. It doesn't mean that there's no Robin Hood effect from the carbon, the cap and trade regulation. It just means that there's going to be a time lag. And that time lag, it could be decades. It could be 10 years, 15, maybe 20 years before you're really going to see things get to the point where the government says, okay, we really need to start having subsidies. Or the opposite's going to happen where you're going to set off basically a, a widespread insurrection. And it's going to be multifaceted. It won't just be the carbon emissions. That might just be the straw that breaks the camel's back. It might be carbon emissions plus civil unrest because of racial tensions plus this, that, or the other thing. And if you look back uh, about 10 years, for while Glenn Beck was still on Fox News, I don't know if you, if, if you track U.S. media or anything like that, but Glenn Beck, when, you know, the guy who was criticized a lot for all the crying and the blackboards and all of the, the theatrics, one of the things that he said was actually really, really valid. And what he said was that there is a, an undercurrent, right, in society that's trying to put pressure top down, bottom up, in, you know, and then inside out. They're trying to blow out the middle class, basically, to incite a mass movement. And they're using the tactics of Saul Alinsky in, in his book that he described in his book, Rules for Radicals, to do that. And, and that really does track. And if you watch the evolution of the Democratic Party in the United States, not to get all political about it, but if you watch the, the tracking of that uh, party, they're not even the party of the Clintons of the 90s, you know, or of, of even Jimmy Carter, or right? Like they're, they're not the same historical party that they were in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's now a very far left party that puts up a moderate figurehead like Joe Biden as their candidate. But then behind that candidate, behind that really palatable person is a whole host of very far to the left people who want to do some really extreme things. And in an interview before he became president, Barack Obama said that under his plan of a cap and trade system, quote, electricity rates or power rates would necessarily skyrocket. His words. This was before he ever became president. He's talking about his energy policy, what he would like to do. He said electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. What's the social effect of that? What's the economic effect of that? Well, obviously, some people are going to be able to afford it. And other people, if they want to maintain a certain standard of living, are going to need subsidies. And the only people who are going to give them subsidies are the government. Because the government, whenever they, they the only way they get money is by force. It's legal theft. It's pay your taxes. If you don't pay your taxes, we will arrest you. And if you, are, if you resist arrest, we will shoot you. There really is no difference between the government taxing you and you being mugged at an ATM. Because, I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's give us your money or we will commit violence against you. We'll put you in. The U.S. has a privileged position. There are two ways, taxation and printing money. And you don't have to give it. <laughs> You don't have to give it back, right? You're the producer of that Can't money. Can't do that forever. 
You can't. Do I it know. Right. No, you're right. It's a dangerous. No, you're right. It's a dangerous thing. And and really, printing money is a different kind of theft. That's theft from the unborn. That's theft from future generations. That's kicking the can down the road. That's that's generational theft, and it's wrong. And uh, for one generation to live comfortably at the expense of future generations is one of the greatest moral crimes that people can commit. You're harming people who never even have a chance. You're robbing, they have, they have no voice. They can't vote for it. They're, they're kids or they're not even born yet, you know? I noticed that people Tyranny. don't think in these categories. They think I am here, if I'm a politician, I'm here for four or five years, depending on the country. Then I'm done, I'm gone to whatever, Rio, Brazil, Caribbean basin. If I am here for my life, it's 80 years. Who cares what's after me? There is no, you know, we were recently um, in Turkey. And I noticed mm -hmm. that people kind of book their uh, relax with the towels and then go somewhere. It's a resource. Let's just keep it. Let's just keep thinking of it as sure. a resource. Someone else can use it kind of rent, but they just booked it and went away. Then I noticed that this same towels are staying overnight. So they maybe have they have maybe left completely, but they left the towel just in case they want to come back to, to have where to come back, you know? And when you say, no, there is enough resource for everyone. I just want to spend like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours by the pool. And I will pick up my stuff and leave the spot for someone else who might also want to enjoy the sun and the pool a little bit. People don't think in those categories. They see that one person did it and I am the only stupid who will suffer all the time because I don't follow the same behavior. So no, by the end of my well, it's not stupid, yeah. it's respectful. It's it, disrespectful and ethical and this is how no, people I mean you're you're not stupid for not doing that. You you're being respectful of other people. You're saying well, about I've never enjoyed oh. the I mean, I never enjoyed the relax, the chaise long. Uh, yeah. I, I had to leave my stuff on the floor, swim a little bit and get the out. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Early bird gets the worm, I guess. But, you know, what sucks is when the early bird just sort of kills the worm and lets it dry in the sun and doesn't even eat it. That's the, wa that's the waste. And that's the analogy. It, I think when it comes to politicians saying, well, we're going to, borrow all of this money or print all this money, which is just borrowing from the future because somebody has to pay it back eventually, or you just default. And that's a really scary thing. What if the US just said, yeah, we're in default now. We're not gonna, we're not gonna ever pay you back for all of these things. What happens then? I mean, that's, that's at some point that's going to have to happen. It's just a matter of when, because there's really no way for us to pay back hundreds of trillions of dollars of unfunded liabilities. You want to see some really scary numbers, go to US Debt Clock. I want to say it's usdebtclock.com or usdebtclock.org. And you look at the debt clock and it's just ticking up all the time, more and more debt all the time. And the number that's really the most terrifying is not the national debt. And it's not the national deficit that we run this year. The national deficits are sort of like, okay, we're going to hold this much this year. The debt is the accumulated deficits of all of the years. But the really, really scary number is n neither of those. It's not our debt. It's what the unfunded it? liabilities. It's all the laws and regulations and everything that we've already passed and promised to do. We have all these liabilities, things that we have to pay for that we have no money for. 
and it's hundreds of trillions of dollars. I think the whole world's GDP is only, it's in the neighborhood of 50 to $55 trillion a year. If you don't count the black market, right? Let's not count the black, let's, we're only counting the recorded stuff, right? Not drugs and what people pay to, you know, have other people whacked or whatever, like all the stuff that's seriously illegal. I mean, there's probably, you, you count all that stuff, the global GDP is huge, right? It's even bigger than we think. But all the legal stuff, if you look at just the legal stuff, something like 50 trillion. And so that's like what the whole world produces in a year, right? And that includes the US. So when you look at all of that and our unfunded liabilities are more than double what the whole world produces in a year, forget about it. Is it ever going to get paid? Forget about it. No way. And then you look at silly things too, like of all the military spending on the planet, all of it, everywhere, the US spends half. Officially. Yeah, and no, no wars, no wars, just conflict, skirmishes, you know, peacekeeping or democracy building or whatever silly little label you want to put on it because we did a stupid thing at the end of World War II and we banned conquest. We banned something that's intrinsic to all of human nature that the stronger countries would go and invade weaker countries and take them over and colonize and, and build up and they would spread their culture through violence. We ban that because it's morally repugnant. It's morally repulsive to, to go and have conquest. But when you ban something that's intrinsic to human nature and has always been a part of our history since the dawn of time, there are some really bad economic effects of that, actually. And it's that you will still have all the conflicts. You just won't get them by the same name and you won't get any of the benefits. You get all the costs and none of the benefits. You, you do get some benefits from these conflicts. Uh, they're still not as extreme as they were the last time we had really big wars, um, like World War II, where we saw massive leaps in medical technology and other technologies in World War II. I mean, what followed World War II? The space race, right? I mean, it was like hot on the heels of World War II. We had huge leaps in technology, World War I, World War II. In the aggregate, it, it did a lot of good for humanity, even though there were atrocities that were also horrible. It's, with humanity, it's always a mixed bag. We're always at our worst and always at our best. And to look at just one side or the other isn't sustainable. It's like you were talking about with the global warming kicking off pandemics and stuff like that. My question is, should we regulate the pandemics through governmental force, should, through political action and laws, should we try to stop it? I would say, no, we shouldn't. I, I don't think we should do anything. I think we should push for technological innovation and private market ways of resolving it. Come up with, yes, come up with a cure, come up with a vaccine, come up with real solutions to these problems. Hey, I mean, tell people, hey, look, if you want to avoid COVID-19, social distancing, just stay the hell away from everybody else. If you do that, if you stay six feet away from everybody, you're probably not going to die, right? Good on you. But if you shut down the entire economy, you see massive joblessness and all these other unintended consequences, all these things. You have to end up, what do we have in the U.S.? Big stimulus checks had to go out. You know, the, the government's spending more money that it doesn't have. You have all these unintended consequences. And so my answer is, it's, it's a bad thing to ban nature. So if the pandemic is a natural phenomenon, Trying to stand in the way of that is like standing in the way of a tsunami. It's just going to get you hurt. It's better to ride the wave if you can, to find a way to use that momentum 
to push everybody forward. And the same goes for war. Don't ban conquest. Just shape culture in such a way that conquest is either unnecessary or unpalatable or whatever. Shape, shape economies and shape culture. There, I think of Sid Meier's Civilization, this video game, the Sid Meier's Civilization. It's a civilization simulator, right? It's really good. And there are several different ways to win the game. And this, I think this is a really, really good analogy for sustainability in your podcast, right? So you can win by conquest, which is use your military to just go and you conquer everyone and you plant your flag in everybody's country and you win. Or you can have a cultural victory where, yeah, there still are these political subdivisions and everything, but that really becomes more of an administrative efficiency matter because we all really have the, the brotherhood of man. We are all speaking the same language. We all have the same cultural values. We have the same blah, 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 right? All the way down. So we're all sort of holding hands together. Nobody's going to kick off a war because it would be like fighting your brother or your cousin or whatever. And that really is I think morally and philosophically from a religious standpoint, whatever, probably the best of all possible worlds. It's very kumbaya, yay, right? There's also the technological victory. Get the hell out, right? Like go colonize other planets, seed humanity to the far reaches of space so that no matter who takes over one little pocket of humanity, nobody controls us all. It's sort of the Frank Herbert Dune perspective on you know freedom generally freedom yay oh there's also the economic victory where you link everybody's economies together so that it's just it will make you poorer to go fight somebody else right like if you go to war against this person all the other countries just simultaneously refuse to trade with you they insulate you and then your regime your regime crumbles in on itself like north korea or iran or whatever right we just have all these sanctions and we just cripple your economy. The problem with doing that in today's global economy is we have cheaters. <laughs> we have people who will see opportunities and they'll say, oh, this country is, you know, they're under sanctions. Now's a great time to sell to them because we can do it at higher prices. Right. So if it weren't for all the cheaters, then sanctions would work and, and all of that. What we've tried to do with the United Nations and sort of all the in, international law regime after World War II is make conquest illegal and chain all our economies together. So we have this sort of hodgepodge response of we're gonna ban war. And there are lots of holes in the system because it doesn't really work. We weren't all on the same page. It's sort of everybody has to do it together or it's not going to work because you'll have cheaters. And the same thing works with economic solution, whether it's a political solution or an economic solution or a cultural solution. If we don't do it all together, it doesn't really work. And so if it doesn't really work, then the question sort of bounces back to, well, should we have conquest? Is that good? And as much as colonialism is hated, it did some good. Like mm -hmm. you've got some Indian thinkers now, people in India who are starting to ask questions like, uh, are we better off now because the British came and colonized us than we would have been if they never had? Yes, some of the things they did were horrible. Yes, it was tyranny. Yes, it was all these bad things, right? But were there some benefits? And it, was it a net positive? And I think those are questions that are worth asking. I think it's worth asking the really hard questions. And economics is, is frequently called the dismal science. And it's called the dismal science because it makes us look at really unpleasant things in a logical way to question how human beings make decisions. And so it's really hard to ask these questions like, should we do nothing about CO2 because it really, you know, CO2 regulation doesn't really do anything but adjust 
It just moves the economic resources around the board. It doesn't really do anything to stop global warming. Should we do nothing to stop war, except, you know, fight defensive wars? Yes, you should defend yourself and all of that. And then just sort of let the chips fall where they may. Let, let colonialism happen until humanity either ex- pushes itself to extinction, in which case the planet will continue on without us and life will continue on without us. And we just sort of reach the end of our merits in the universe. That's okay. You know, everything, all good things come to an end. So is that the way we go? Or should we do nothing about pandemics? Sometimes doing the, doing nothing is the hardest thing, but a lot of times it's the right thing because it's the thing that lets, lets humanity ride the tsunami, ride these trends, ride, ride whatever it is. And it, it ultimately leaves us, I think with a more sustainable world, the whole world's capacity for humanity is about nine or 10 billion people. We're at seven. And I think we're overdue for a hard reset. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a misanthrope and it doesn't mean that I hate humanity. It certainly doesn't mean that I want to see widespread suffering, deprivation, death. I don't want to see any of those things. I love my fellow man just as much as everybody else. But at the same time, we sort of do create a lot of our own problems, don't we? And to try to stand in the way of the consequences of those problems just perpetuates the problem. I think if we really want to build a sustainable future, we have to start letting ourselves feel the consequences of our actions or sadly, the actions of our forebears. I just wrote an article on the, the, great, uh, the great wealth transfer. It's a $30 trillion wealth transfer. It's the biggest wealth transfer in human history. It's from the baby boomers, the generation born between 1944 and 1964. The baby boomers after the end of World War II, everyone came back and had a bunch of babies, right? And the baby boomers are, over the next 22 years or so, they're going to start retiring and expiring. And as they expire, they're passing on as inheritance some of their wealth. In the U.S., they they control 70% of all disposable wealth, of all disposable income. 70% concentrated in the hands of a single generation more than anybody else. But they've left the world a mess. Yeah, they've left true. the world a mess. What is the role of the government? I think the role of the government, and there's a great book called Common Sense Economics by Dr. James Gortney. You can get it through Amazon. There are, there are half a dozen other ec- economists who are authors as well. But Dr. James Gortney is the lead author, G-W-A-R-T-N-E-Y, Gortney. Um, and he, he outlines, or they, the economists who wrote that book, and it's very readable, very easy, accessible English. Um, it may be in other languages as well by now, but you can buy it on Amazon, and I'm sure it'll tell you if it's available in your language. I know this podcast is in, what, like 96 countries around the world. You're phenomenally successful. It's great. But they actually will do a better job than I would have of diving in with, at a great level of detail to what the role of, of good government is. But I, I think you can sum it up really briefly by just saying it's to protect people's lives from imminent death or bodily injury. Okay, so it's imminent death or bodily injury. It doesn't mean that we put a helmet on society and wrap them in bubble wrap and, and don't let anybody get hurt ever. Because sometimes it's better to allow people to get hurt and then fix it because that's actually less expensive, less costly, and it gives people more freedom and liberty to live their lives as they see fit, to let 
let some bad things happen, and then resolve it after the fact. Where we want to probably mitigate that is where it's going to be widespread death or suffering, or it's something where there are public goods involved, where, where mitigation is a public good. So things, for example, like mosquito abatement. The cost of mosquito abatement, then thereby curbing the spread of diseases like malaria, it can't. The cost of that can't really be isolated, and to the people who receive the benefits, and that's the very definition of a public good. Something is a public good if we all benefit from it equally, and you can't really charge the people who benefit for it the cost of that benefit. So mosquito abatement sort of benefits everyone in the area, so it makes sense to tax for that. Let the government do things like that. But like public transportation, it doesn't really, it's not impossible. It's not impossible to charge the people who benefit directly from that. We do that all the time, a Metro Pass, buy a Metro Pass, scan it when you get on the bus. When I was in Rome, it was wonderful. Like we don't have as much public transportation in Nashville, Tennessee, but in Rome, I mean, it was just like buses, trains, whatever, commuter rail, light rail. It's wonderful. Some cities here in like New York, Seattle, LA, they have public transportation systems, good infrastructure and all of that, but it's not ubiquitous here. And I think people in Europe probably take the wonderful public transportation almost for granted, but you can localize the cost of that to the people who ride that public transportation. So those are not public goods, not really. Medicine, not really a public, public good. You can charge people at the hospital. You know, you can, they can pay, they can have insurance, whatever. Whether or not that's affordable is a whole other complete episode, I'm sure, for a different, probably even for a different podcast. But suffice to say, I think the government is there to provide things that are actually public goods. And what those things are, are badly understood because of poor economic literacy. So that's protecting life protecting liberty, so keeping people from enslaving other people, and preventing the majority from oppressing minorities. I would challenge people to really open their minds about the definition of what a majority is and what a minority is, because we've really thought about it in visible, visceral, tangible terms in the past. We've thought about it in terms of racial majorities and racial minorities, ethnic majorities and ethnic minorities and religious majorities and religious minorities. Those are all things that we can see. It's the color of a person's skin. It's where they're from. It's what church they go to, what mosque they attend, whatever, right? What synagogue they, they go to, whatever it is. I would say that a more important kind of majority or minority, especially in the information age, especially in the 21st century, is the way that you think, and it's a harder way to categorize, like progressivism versus libertarianism, or, or you know, free, free thinking, small government, big government versus small government. Are more people big government people and fewer people small government people? So do we have a majority who are big government people, like basically committing tyranny, you know, oppressing the small government people. And is that good? Is that just as wrong as a, a majority ethnic group tyrannizing, but oppressing a, a smaller, a minority ethnic group? So I think liberty is a big deal generally and having the, the rule of law, not just the rule of people. So eliminating corruption and not having to pay bribes to get things done and having everyone treated equally under the law, which means the, the government does not look at your identity at all whenever they're enforcing rules and regulations. All laws should be identity 
agnostic, which means you really shouldn't have any kind of diversity regulation or diversity legislation because all of that is bound up with identity politics. Um, just like our tax code really should not treat married people and single people differently. It doesn't make any sense. That's an identity question. Who are you? What are you doing? We're you know, adjusting your incentives based on whether or not you're married. And, and I think that really drove a lot of social policy with the legalization of same-sex marriages in the United States. Part of the argument was, uh, if we're a same-sex couple, we can't get married. So we have to respond to different property laws and tax laws. We're not treated equally under the law. And so they were able to use that argument to say our relationships should be re recognized as legal marriages so that we can be treated equally under the law. If the government had never treated married people and, uh, and unmarried people differently, they wouldn't have had that argument. So there are lots of social unintended consequences as well. So yeah. I think there's life, liberty, and then the third one is property. Yeah, I think yeah. the government should uh, protect people's right to own private property and to control their private property and not to deprive them of property. Thomas Jefferson said that the sum of good government is not to take from the mouth of labor the bread that it has earned. So if, if someone's out there working all day to earn their, earn their bread, earn their living, and you just reach in and you snatch from them the reward that they've earned, that's wrong. And the government shouldn't do that any more than private people should do that. One last question, but a big one. Based on your experience and knowledge, and back to the sustainability umbrella, what's the best political regime for sustainability? Gary Becker, famous Nobel Prize winning economist, Gary Becker said that the government does nothing well and most things poorly. The government does nothing well, most things badly, to paraphrase him. It's not just that they're, they're, they don't excel, it's that they actually, make it, they actually make it worse, right? Like if you give the government something, you can expect that it's going to be, to be bad. Government run hospitals, are they better than private hospitals? You tell me. Government-run public transportation versus privately operated or, you know, more privately, like maybe the government subsidizes it a little bit, but they contract with private people to actually operate the public transportation network or system or whatever. Are those privately run enterprises better? Do people have more of an incentive to provide something of higher quality, more goods and services to more people at, high, at lower cost? Do they have more of an incentive to do that? when they are driven by an internal motivation to make a profit? Are they, are they better off? Or is it better to leave it in the hands of a bureaucrat whose job will not be affected even if the outcome is bad? So I would say that the, trying to answer the question which political regime is, is really saying which is the least bad option? Which is the least objectionable response? And I would say that as political systems go, the smallest one that can still do the job is the right answer. And if you look at the World Economic Freedom Index, it's, you know, we track this, which countries are the most economically free, give people the most control over their property and stuff. Those countries tend to do the best. They tend to have higher quality of living. There are a couple of exceptions, but a lot of those exceptions, when you start to look at them, they have cultural advantages and they have other advantages. That really goes back to my response, trying to quantify your answer as a political answer. It's not really possible because I don't think that humanity really wins the sustainability game 
by just looking at one type of solution, like a political solution. I think we need a holistic perspective. I think you have to look at having the political piece right and understanding that if you have the political piece right, but you have the cultural piece wrong and the economic piece wrong and the military piece wrong, you've got all these other pieces wrong and things go sideways, it doesn't mean that you don't have the right political system. That's like trying to use a hammer for every construction job, <laughs> right? It's not gonna help you turn a screw, at least not efficiently. It's not gonna help you dig a hole very efficiently. Uh, using a hammer for everything just makes you look stupid, like you don't know what you're doing, right? When it, when it comes to driving a nail, please, by all means, use a hammer, right? That's good. Let's use the right tool for the right job. But we can't use the hammer for everything, just like we can't use a political system to solve every problem. And people who only think in terms of politics and power structures are trying to use one tool to solve all their problems, and it's overly simplistic. It's a hallmark of bad thinking, bad logic, bad reasoning. If someone's doing that, they're probably not firing on all cylinders. They don't have the mental resources or, or the perspective that it takes to really present real solutions because the real solutions are political and cultural and economic and yes, military. I mean, we do have to protect ourselves. Every nation has to protect themselves. And, and even if you eliminated all governments and all nationalism and you had a one world government to think that there would never need to be a military is, is, is just ridiculous, right? You would still need to have military power because from time to time, it's human nature that some people are going to think, well, I'm not happy with the system. So that Eric Hoffer's philosophy would still be relevant because you're still going to have some people who are disenfranchised or they feel like they're outside the system or they feel like this thing is wrong or that thing is wrong. So they're going to rise up and you're going to have to put down a rebellion. You're still going to need a military for some purpose. And you're going to really need all four of those uh, dimensions of human systems to really create a sustainable, holistic solution. You need the political, you need the economic, you need the cultural, and you need the military. And they all have to be in harmony with each other. If, to answer your question with a satisfactory answer, I would say, and I use this word, I know this is a loaded word in international conversations, but I mean this in the United States way of thinking about it, right? I think a libertarian government is the right answer. Internationally, I know that the word libertarian means anarchist, but that's not what I mean at all. I don't mean anarchist. I mean the minimum effective dose to protect life, liberty, and property. So probably a better, for an international audience, a better term might be the small government minimum effective dose response. That requires term limits for politicians. It requires a strong constitutional government to keep the national government in order. And it means understanding at a philosophical level that if you can solve a problem at the local level, you don't bubble it up to the regional level. It stays local. Local issues stay local and they're decided at the local level. Even if people in other localities look at that local situation, they say, you guys made the wrong call. Mind your business. <laughs> Mind your own business. Stay out of our, like, we're over here. We'll solve our problems. You solve your problems and you shut up about it. And then at a regional level, if, if it can't be solved at the local level, let the regional people take a crack at it. And if they can solve it, great, good on them. If they can't, then bubble it up maybe to the national level 
or a super regional level. If you're if you're in a really large country like Russia or China, you know, you look at the map like they span massive regions. Something that affects everyone at a national level, it's going to be more heavy-handed, right? The right solution for one part of your country might be the wrong solution for another part of your country. So it's really better, like the United States, part of, part of what our secret sauce is and what makes us great is we have 50 different states that are united. They're United States. And the, the way it was up until we passed the um, 17th Amendment uh, and sort of deprived individual states of their voice in the federal government, which happened about 100 years ago under President Woodrow Wilson. Before that happened, we had 50 states that all had a voice in the federal government. And they spoke in the federal government through their senators. That's why we have two houses of government. We have the House of Representatives, popularly elected. They represent the people as such. And then the senators were there to represent the states as states in the federal government. And James Madison wrote, uh, one of the, the father of our constitution wrote in the Federalist Papers that we never really had to worry about a runaway federal government, the federal government just taking control of everything because the states would keep the federal government in check. But then when we passed the 17th Amendment, we robbed the states of their ability to do that. So now everyone's looking to the federal government to solve all the problems. And that's never the way it was designed. What made us strong was we had 50 different independent states. And if one of them failed or you know, was having a problem, you could localize that failure to that state. The impact on everybody else was mitigated. So you, know, you could then rely on our culture and private relief to go in and solve those problems. Last little anecdote, you might say, well, what about, what about when you do have a problem and it is a big issue that sort of affects everyone else? There was a, a president named Grover Cleveland and Grover Cleveland received a bill that passed both houses of Congress and it went across the president's desk. So here we have spending bills, they have to originate in the House where the, that represents all the people as people. Then they have to pass the Senate, basically get the state's approval on it, right? And then it goes to the president who can veto the whole thing or not. And he has the authority to either sign it into law and then it becomes a law and he, his job is to carry out the law or he can veto it and it dies. There was a really, really bad drought and in the, the breadbasket of the United States and lots of farmers, they lost everything. The drought killed everything. They didn't have the money to buy seeds. This was, again, early 19th century. So $100,000 back then was like millions of dollars now, right? Congress passed $100,000 of, of new spending subsidies to go to farmers to buy seeds so that they could restore their crops so that the nation would not starve, would not go hungry. And this bill crossed President Cleveland's desk and he vetoed it. Very unpopular, right? Like it would, it would never happen today, never happen today. But he vetoed it and he said, I can see no reason, no authorization in the constitution whatsoever that this bill should become a law because it is not the government's job to support the people. It's people's job to support the government. And if we have the government stepping in to support people and provide for people and we pass these kinds of subsidies, then people will become reliant on the government and it will undermine our national character, will no longer depend on our neighbors, our brothers, our friends, the people around us. It will break the bonds of local community. And we won't be able to just rely on our neighbors and it will weaken our whole national character.
So he vetoed the bill. And then private, private charity picked up the slack. And the farmers still had enough money to buy seeds because of private charity. Yeah, it really depends on where in the world you are. I had plenty of interviews with people residing in Singapore and they say our government is very paternalistic. We really rely upon our government because this mm-hmm. is what work there uh, throughout generations and centuries. At the same time, libertarianism, right? You look at the Scandinavian countries. What do they do right? I don't know what their political system is. Uh, socialism, probably? No? Well, isn't Sweden a monarchy? They're a constitutional monarchy. They have a socialist economic system, but exactly. there's a king of Sweden. So it's a, it's the economic system's different from the political system. So they have different, I think, different cultural issues. And of course, their culture is now undergoing a rapid change because they're importing a lot of people who are not traditionally Swedish. <laughs> so there are people, the number one, if you look at the Duolingo language learning app, yeah, I have. Num- yeah, if you look at that app, I love that app. I'm using it. I used it to teach myself a bit of French, and I'm using it to teach myself Japanese now. This is not a commercial for Duolingo, but I love Duolingo. Anyway, it popped up a little notification on my app, and it said the number one language learned in Sweden right now is Swedish. Wow. Mostly by refugees. Yeah. So it's funny that most people in your country, they're not learning a foreign language. They're learning the native language because they're not native. They're from somewhere else. Um, and so I think they've got a cultural part of their puzzle is the one that they're trying to solve. And they've, they've got a pretty stable political or a system that has been stable for them. It remains to be seen whether or not the cultural changes will destabilize their political system and destabilize the economy over the long term. These are things that you can let a whole bunch of people in really fast. But it takes a while for that to settle and for you to really see what are the actual macroeconomic effects of that? What are the macro social effects of that? What are the macro cultural effects of that? Are, are they going to assimilate? Like we, in the United States, we have a, a huge problem with illegal immigration. And a lot of that comes across our southern border. And problem comes not from the immigration per se, but from the fact that it is illegal. It's done illegally. We're not equipped to handle millions and millions of people coming across the southern border who then do not assimilate into American culture. Instead, instead of being a melting pot, like everyone saw, oh, you're a melting pot. We're not a melting pot. We're a salad bowl. <laughs> Nobody's melting together, right? Everyone's staying their own little, their own little yeah. cultural pockets. It would be different if you, you came here and you learned the national language and you adopted the culture and you said, ah, oh, we're Americans. But instead they say we're this were, you know, Mexican Americans or Ecuadorian Americans or Korean Americans or Japanese Americans or Hungarian Americans or whatever, or Italian Americans or Irish Americans. Stop it. Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt said, there's no room for hyphenated Americanism. You're either an American or you're not. And I think that's right. Like no one would move to France and say, I'm an American Frenchman. <laughs> People would just like, no, you can be French or you can get out, right? Like you can be German or you can get out. Like we, we only want you here. If you really want to be here, you don't get to just come here, get the benefits of being here, but then bring everything with you that you like, weren't you trying to leave all of that? Right? Like if it's so great where you're from, why don't you just go back there? And 
people don't want to hear that. They say, oh, that's, you know, xenophobic and you're racist and you don't want people from where, no, we want them. We just want them if they want to be here. We don't want them if they want to be here and bring all the problems with them. They're trying to leave their problems. So, so leave them in fact, right? Actually leave them and come here. If you really think that this is a better situation for you, embrace it wholeheartedly. Be wholeheartedly wherever you are. The right solution for you, if you're asking what I think the right solution is for sustainability, I think it's one that people embrace wholeheartedly and they embrace holistically. Whether it's a political situation that you're trying to change, like maybe whatever your situation is in your country, maybe it's a cultural piece that your country needs to fix. Maybe it's an economic piece that your country needs to fix. China's really struggling with that. They have more or less a monoculture. Their culture is what it is because it's thousands of years old. It's ancient and beautiful and amazing, right? But they've had a lot of economic turmoil in the last 100, 150 years. You had Mao killed something like 80 million Chinese because of communism in, in the communist revolution and then the starvation and everything that, that resulted from that. Kim Jong-il killed more people per capita in North Korea than even Mao did in China because of communism. Communism has been an abject failure every single place that it's ever been tried. It's never succeeded because it can't succeed. And so it's a failed economic system, but you still have all these people who are heavily invested in it and they can't quite get it out of their country and can't quite get it out of their system because it's, it also has cultural components or political components. And so there is no clean answer. There's no one answer. It's everything is connected to everything. And I think trying to answer your question is really impossible. The only way to say it is, as far as politics goes, let's use as little of that as possible because usually the political solution has a violent enforcement. And that's, that's really sad. I mean, violence is always sad. To wrap it up, it was an amazing conversation, very insightful. I am walking away with more questions than answers uh, <laughs> I received, <laughs> but that's a good thing. And I also took plenty of notes about the books and the authors and the economical and political regimes. One last question and try to be sure. very concise. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be one concise. Piece, one piece of advice for the listeners of Sustainability Explored. I hardly feel qualified to give advice to people in 96 countries. That's a daunting thing. 97 um, now, by the way. Be kind. Be kind. But in being kind, I think that empathy, trying to imagine what you think other people feel, right? And then using that to motivate you. That's, that's typically what we think about when we think about empathy, right? I think that causes a lot of problems. You know, it's, it's easy to want to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We often see empathy as the golden rule, but it really is not because it's based on feelings and how we imagine other people feel. And I think that is the, that's what's dangerous about empathy. So I, I would challenge people to read Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. I think that book is much needed right now because I do want people to be kind to each other, but there's a very specific way in which we need to be kind if we want it to really stick and to really work and to have big, large-scale social benefits. And the way that we should be kind to each other is to be rationally compassionate, not just to let our feelings run amok 
and say, oh, I feel so bad for you. I know you, before we started recording today, you were talking about being a results-oriented person and you, how you have very little patience for people who, you know, just let their feelings run amok and you're not just going to sit there and commiserate with them if you don't have a solution. It leaves you feeling frustrated. And I think that that is the same for a lot of people. I think in public policy, especially in law and economics, especially, it will leave you feeling frustrated if you just act on your feelings and you try to do the best for somebody and you get in there and you feel their pain, right? But you don't really have any real solutions that address the underlying sources of their problems. I think if we really want to do that in a holistic and sustainable way, we have to be rationally compassionate. We have to, yes, be compassionate for other people, act it out of uh, motivation of love, but do it in a way that's, that's rational and smart. If we're not loving people in a smart way, then we're just recklessly loving them. And that doesn't go very well. <laughs> Noel, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me and with the listeners of 97. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, wow, 97 countries, wow. So I was off it's by one. It's like so a week. Amazing. The latest country that join, joined was uh, Tajikistan. And I know no one oh. in Tajikistan, so. <laughs> well, that's really cool congratulations on your your successful podcast if you ever do have questions and you want to email me or have me back I'd, i'd be happy to answer your questions anytime can the listeners do the same sure my law firm is um, executive legal professionals we're a tennessee-based law firm i'm licensed in the state of tennessee and you can go to executivelp.com to find out more about me, or you can just look me up on LinkedIn. Connecting with me on LinkedIn is probably the best way to ask a question and get a quick answer. So you don't even have to hit my, you can go to my website and see what we're all about if you want to. But if you just want to connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message or ask me a question. I'm totally okay with that. That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> okay. Awesome. No, thank you so much. Have a great day ahead. For me, it's yes, the you. end of the day. Uh, it was a big pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being with us today and for listening to this episode. I appreciate so much you taking the time today. And I hope you loved listening to this episode as much as we both, me and Noel, loved working on it together. As always, if you have any questions for me or my guest, Noel Bagwell, don't hesitate to reach to both of us or either of us on LinkedIn. We are both easily findable and very approachable people. So if you like the podcast, you know what to do. Subscribe, like, share on your social media, reach out to me, leave a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. I don't have visibility over a lot of platforms we are now residing on as a podcast. But if you leave a review on our Podchaser page, I will reply to you in person, as I always do. That makes me very, very happy. We also have a YouTube channel, LinkedIn page, and a Facebook group where we can engage, interact, you can ask your questions. Again, there is me behind this podcast, no one else. So I, I really, really enjoy getting in touch with my listeners and guests and everyone around the topic of sustainability. I always suggest some other related episodes that have been issued earlier on the podcast. Right now, my thought goes to the episode I recorded in March, I think, in March, April 2020. It's called Saving the Amazon Rainforest One Acre at a Time. 
with Danny Blue. Well, during the episode and very much so by the very end, I recite that report that I mentioned today on the land use and the changes in the land use that generate and trigger pandemics nowadays. Following today's episode, uh, this is something I can direct you to. Otherwise, there hasn't been many episodes or guests where we would cover economical or political systems or the best systems whatsoever for sustainability. So this one is a little bit unique uh, in its kind. Finally, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Challenge me with your questions, as always, anything that bugs you. Nominate yourself as a guest or someone else that you would like to see on my podcast. I will reach out and find a, a way to, to invite the guest to the podcast. This was Sustainability Explored, episode number 62, season 5. And me, your host, Anna Chashina. Thank you so much again for listening, for being with us today and always. And until next time, next Thursday, take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye.